Hello, and welcome to episode 75 with poet, professor, and editor Victoria Chang. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker, and this is Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. Victoria Chang is the author of the poetry collections Circle, Salvinia Molesta, The Boss, and most recently, Barbie Chang. She's the editor of the anthology Asian American Poetry, The Next Generation, and author of Mommy Is, a Picture Book. Her poetry collection, Obit, and her middle grade verse novel, Love, Love, are both forthcoming in 2020. Victoria works with a team to run Antioch University's low-residency MFA program. She coordinates the Idlewild Writers Week and serves on the National Book Critics Circle Board. She lives in Los Angeles with her family and her wiener dogs, Mustard and Ketchup. I spoke with Victoria on April 6th, 2019, after a long afternoon at the Master's School, where Victoria was the headliner reader at the Westchester Poetry Festival. It was fascinating and wonderful talking with Victoria about letting poems lead you where they need to go, shame, loving revision more than writing, the various kinds of labor we both do in the literary community, our feelings about, as Victoria calls them, the circle, or as I call them, lobby moms. Victoria's life in the business world, punctuation, our adoration of the next generation of poets, and so much more. I hadn't met Victoria in person before the day I recorded this conversation with her, and in many ways, we have little in common. Victoria grew up in Michigan, worked for a time as a management consultant, and now lives on the other coast. Her poems have a more contained, formal feeling than mine do. In addition to deeply enjoying her poems, though, I hear in her work a voice that calls me to write, a voice that is somehow familiar, even though it is distinct from anything I've heard before and describes thoughts and experiences that are not at all mine. On the day of our conversation, I was anemic, tired, and out of it. But I don't think that's very audible in the conversation. Victoria's energy and clarity of mind, her warmth, intellectual engagement, and enthusiasm for the many things she does was contagious and enough to propel both of us. I felt a like-mindedness to Victoria in person, just as I do to her poems. I think Victoria and I are similar in some funny ways, including that we are poets who maybe have entrepreneur brains, or at least system thinker brains. I'm not quite sure how to describe it, but it was such a pleasure speaking with Victoria about poetry and the poetry world, about commerce, community, writing, and literary labor. And now for the businessy part of this introduction. For this episode, some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive copies of Circle, Salvinia Molesta, The Boss, and Barbie Chang, all by Victoria Chang. Many thanks to Crab Orchard Southern Illinois Press, University of Georgia Press, McSweeney's, and Copper Canyon Press for all of these wonderful books. If you'd like to find out how to become a Commonplace Book Club member or a Commonplace patron at any level, please visit commonpodcast.com. 
where you can also find links to the people and texts Victoria and I discuss in this episode, and where you can sign up for the Commonplace newsletter, which comes out once per episode. A few months ago, a listener, clearly meaning to forward the Commonplace newsletter to a friend, but distracted by being tired, I think from jet lag, hit reply instead. So I received the reply to the Ilya Kaminsky newsletter that went like this. Hi, home last night, slept 12 hours, not as bad as entries last time. Do you know Commonplace? Que rico, as they say, longing to see you. Have a window on Saturday or Sunday? Iced tea and coffee available here. Love. I hope this person got together with their friend and what a lovely accident it was to receive this missent missive. Thank you to our patrons who make Commonplace possible. Thank you to all of you who support Commonplace by recommending it to friends and students and sending me encouraging emails, tweets, and Instagram posts. You make Commonplace a pleasure. Thank you also to everyone who reached out to me with kind words about my new book, Sound Machine, and the audio project, also called Sound Machine, the book is available in bookstores and online, and the audio project is available on Bandcamp. Okay, here with great pleasure is my conversation with Victoria Chang. So maybe just for context, um, we're sitting in your hotel uh, near the master's school where you were just the keynote poet mm -hmm. at the Westchester Poetry Festival. And uh, Jenny Z was there and uh, Monica Farrell and who am I forgetting? Megan Plunkett. Is Meg that, I yep. don't know if that's how you pronounce it. Megan right? yeah. Plunkett mm -hmm. and... Uh, Jennifer Franklin and Jennifer Frank Franklin. Thank you. So and it was a great day. Um, and there were a lot of student readers mm -hmm. um, who go to the master's school. And then I think there were some a bunch of students in the audience, um, West Point students. Mm -hmm. So that was a, that was amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and then a lot of uh, listeners from Westchester area and, and a few from the city who came up. Um, so that's pretty cool. So here we are. Mm -hmm. And um, I chose this place and time only because you live in California. Mm -hmm. And so it was this delightful opportunity to have you on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. And so in revisiting your work, I haven't written anything new and I'm not complaining or freaked out, but for a lot of different reasons, I haven't really written anything new for uh, maybe three years. Um, I've certainly been busy and I get into a thing where uh, it's not a panic, but I do think, well, that's it. That's fine. That's right. I'm done. Mm -hmm. I'm, I don't need to write anything else. I wrote, I've written a lot of stuff and I'm done. I just don't, I don't feel it. It just feels like something I've never done. <laughs> it does not feel like riding a bike, <laughs> which I'm also not good at. Um, <laughs> but I was, um, I was rereading Barbie Chang and I want to talk to you about it. It, 
I don't know if it was the form. I don't know if it was the voice. I don't know if it was the structure. I don't, I don't know. It almost feels like pheromones um, that when I have this experience um, with a poet, but I heard the voice and um, I just was like, oh, I hear it. And I wanted to protect it like a little flame. Mm-hmm. And then it was almost painful to be reading your other work because I love it so much and I wanted to pay attention, but I also wanted to just like close all the books and the anthology and start writing. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. Yeah. So <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what happens. But I really wanted to thank you. It was like magic and oh, wow. it, it had been a long time. That is so exciting because I've had that experience too. And I feel like three years feels like a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I do feel like like poets, but writers in general, when you're done with something, you, you actually do think, am I ever, ever going to write anything again? And it is this sort of fear. I actually heard you saying in another podcast, you know, just, um, and I think you were talking to Sarah Gambito and saying just sort of this idea of, um, is, I think Sarah maybe had said this, is it is it even something that I kind of, like, is it even that important to you? And maybe that was, I can't, now I can't remember who said it, but one of you were saying it. I and mean, yeah. you kind of had such a, a wonderful symbiosis in that conversation that I couldn't, I can't remember who said what, but it was all very interconnected. Um, I always think there's so many, there's so many other easier things to do. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think, like I said today earlier, it's like, I think poetry finds us. Yeah. And that's a great example of how poetry finding us in that we can sit and call it and call it and call it and call it. And some people do that. They sit and they write every day and they, they generate these beautiful drafts and things like that. But, um, based on what you just told me and my own experience is that, no, it has to call me. And if it doesn't, it doesn't feel that it comes from the soul, you know, like I could, you know, you and I could sit down and we could together write a poem, a a very competent poem right now. But I think, um, given time constraints and all these other things, I don't want to write those kinds of poems. Mm -hmm. Um, I always want to try and write something that really just, I, I, it lives in my skin and my cells and my body. And I think in order to write those kinds of poems, I have to wait. Mm hmm. Well, I want to do, would you read a poem from Barbie Chang? Yeah. I have it on my computer. Barbie Chang vows to quit. Barbie Chang vows to quit watching the circle as they go to lunch, lifted up in their own wind, winding through the parking lot in hot plumes. She vows to quit watching their children in pools together on plastic animals. She tells herself she is more than a gesture, has some stature, is ready to work for space. Her muscles ache as she collegiates her children, so in the future they paint pictures of themselves with black hair, become more than someone else's grieving, because everyone has debt with the sun, because at night things become clear again, windows light up like presents. In one, a boy with cerebral palsy in a ball, laughing, his body stiff in the shape of an empty lawn chair. So, may we read one more? Sure. Okay. Um, once Barbie Chang loved, 
Once Barbie Chang loved Mr. Darcy, who had many rivals who arrived at her doorstep each morning, he had so little body fat he never floated to the surface of the pool. Barbie Chang watched him disappear like a servant. Maybe that's why she is always thirsty, always looking for someone else to make her worthy. Bartz says lovers are wedged between two tenses of the now and the then. It's too early to say the mothers at school have ruled her out. They are the future tense the then. The circle they form each day works as a ring around a planet, magnetic and genetic. If she sticks her head out the window as if she is on a train, maybe night will take her head off. Awesome. Okay, so I'd love to hear, you talked in the festival a little bit about these poems. You talked about how you wrote this manuscript, it wasn't even going to be a manuscript in first person, and then later changed the poems to third person, and uh, that Mr. Darcy was kind of an amalgamation of pregnancy dreams that Mm -hmm. you had about sort of falling in love with lots of different people, and then they all sort of became Mr. Darcy. Um, The one thing you didn't, um, so I want to hear more about that, like what you had said sort of that you heard the, the poems told you to do mm-hmm. this. So I want to know, can you say more mm-hmm. about what the poems sound like when they speak to you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but also these poems in the book. Um, so there's four sections in the book mm-hmm. and the, the Barbie Cheng poems are all in a very similar looking form on the page. They're in couplets. Um, the first line of each couplet is flush left. And then the second line of each couplet is sort of stepped in. And sometimes it seems like there's uh, other formal rules like uh, I was counting the words and the syllables and it's not rigid mm-hmm. um, in terms of that. But sometimes there'll be like a whole poem where there'll be like seven words in the first line and then five in the or four in the second line. Mm-hmm. But even if it's not um, an exact pattern, but please tell me if it is and mm-hmm. I'm not I'm just like not getting it. Um, it's a very regular form. Mm-hmm. No punctuation. Um Yes, capitalization. Uh, and uh, I found the these poems to be, li- like I just said, like just they just pulled me in. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like I just became a part of that world. Um, and I and I'm trying to think about, is it the form? Um, is it that I feel very that you, are having observations and noticing things that are um, that I have overlapping experiences with. Like I'm obsessed with the circle and mm-hmm. with Mr. Darcy and with um, these uh, details about the aging and dying parents. Mm-hmm. And but talk to me, if you will, about how these poems evolved, um, how they told you what to do, both in terms of the change in speaker. Um, and also when, at what point did this, did the form that they're in present itself? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I always ask people this question, you know, like, how do you write? Like, what Mm -hmm. is your, and I mean, do you write by hand? Do you write on computer? I mean, Uh, yeah. Uh, I think I often write by hand and then put it into the computer, but I don't have a rule about it. So there are times when I'll go straight to the computer. What about you? 
I think I tend to write by hand Mm -hmm. in just a regular composition notebook that ends when it ends. It's not really wide. And and they just end up being like these, um, it fills the whole page, Mm -hmm. literally from front to and there's, and I'm really listening for the musicality of the language at that point and just sort of just trying to get stuff off, off my chest or just kind of grappling through things because a lot of the things, um, that I, I, I think I use poetry as, as it's, my poetry is rot, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's just, um, rife with a lot of angst because I think I use it as a medium to grapple with things that I observe that are bothering me. So it's never like, oh, I'm so happy because I don't need to grapple with happiness. Well, maybe I do, because, <laughs> but I think um, emotionally I use poetry as a way to think through things. So, um, And so I write on a piece of paper and then at some point it gets transferred into a computer. And at that point I start listening to the poems Mm -hmm. and they start talking to me. Um, You know, I think they start speaking into my head and telling and telling me, um, controlling me. You know, I think of the poem as being more powerful than the self and the ego. um, And it controls my body and it controls my hand and it tells me kind of how it wants to be. And if I don't listen, then it doesn't work that well. And and then I have to talk to it more and keep listening and waiting. And eventually, um, you know, these poems seem like they they needed a little more space. Um, so I had couplets and they, it's the staggering form felt like it, it matched the pacing and helped with the lack of punctuation. So the long line, the short line, um, gave readers an opportunity, I think, to sort of take, to work without punctuation because it's hard to read. Um, and when I read them aloud, I struggle myself and I always screw up. So I think, I think just the function of all the elements that are happening in there, it just sort of told me it didn't want to be these large chocolate bar poems, you Mm. know, or um, Hershey's chocolate bar poems, I call them, or kind of long lines, which would cause a little more difficulty. I think Um, it just kind of seemed like they wanted to be these more clipped lines, a little more staggered in that short, long line form to kind of maybe give the reader a sense of the angst in the poems. So the form sort of follows that funk, the subject matter. And, um, and then in terms of how it switched from first to third person, the manuscript, it wasn't, you know, I just wrote these to grapple with the circle Mm -hmm. and these, these women that I just found to be so exclusive. And, um, it seemed like such a goofy, silly thing to write. And I thought in no, any point in time when I was writing these in no way did I ever ever think that anyone would read them. Mm -hmm. Um, but then at some point I was like, well, why not? Why not? You know, I mean, um, I could write about sparrows and they do appear in my poems. I could write about lots of things, but, you know, let's just, I kind of tend to write about things that bother me. And sometimes the things that bother me aren't things that typically appear in poetry. You know, like the boss was about the ostensibly apparently after the fact about the hierarchy in the workplace and the hierarchy and the slippage of hierarchy in one's daily life. And, um, and so I, I just, you know, I just said, why not? And so I started working with it and, but it wasn't working. Mm -hmm. It felt too egotistical and self-centered and too focused on the speaker, um, too autobiographical. And that was when that name Barbie Chang popped into my head, which I talked about earlier today and having grown up in the Midwest, you know, it's always one, uh, what the, the, the one or the token, um, the invisible mm-hmm. and, uh, played with Barbies all growing up making stories and stuff like that. But they, I just never imagined that a Barbie could be a Chang. And that idea really disturbed me as an adult. And so I said, well, what if I changed all these poems to Barbie Chang, 
Like that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard, but I did it anyway, because that's about, that's what we do. We play, we experiment and it's just like Legos. You can always take them apart and it's fine. Um, and so I just always, if my impulse, if someone's, something's telling me the voice, the the poem is telling me to do something, I'll just dice follow it. And, and I just go with it, even Mm. though it seems ludicrous at the time, which it usually does in my case. And that's how all these got changed to third person. But that, that was when I went back and I started uh, messing around more and I felt like it gave me more permission to exaggerate or to make up storylines or to, you know, it just gave me more freedom when Mm. I, when I could uh, divorce the, the eye from the speaker in the, in the manuscript. And so that's sort of that process of how this book came to be. I, I don't want to talk uh, entirely about Obit yet, mm-hmm. but um, I'm interested in this question because uh, my newest book, Sound Machine, I many of the poems are in she. There's not a, a named character, but uh, it the, the switch from first person to third person is like very important. And I was wondering, because you go back to first person in Obit, mm-hmm. um, and I'm wondering... While you were writing them and then afterwards, do you think it had an effect on you of some kind to be in the process of writing what were essentially autobiographical poems, but with this kind of distancing? Yeah. So what? what, what? Absolutely. And I love that switch that that you've done for yourself, too, having read a lot of your work, if not most of it. Um, it, it seems like that would be a great fun experiment to just Mm -hmm. try to write in third person too. Um, just having read all your work that I've loved for so long. And I think that, um, yeah, I think, I think there was also a degree of shame and I, and I felt like shame was an important part of this process of Mm -hmm. writing and coming to grips with my own shame as a, an adult female mother who was suddenly, um, feeling all these feelings that I hadn't felt in a really long time of, of caring what this group of people thought of me or the fact that they didn't think about me at all. (laughs) It bothered me so much. And it, and it, and so I think that, um, you know, the third person came as a way to deflect on that and to, to give myself space, Mm -hmm. which you think would kind of, um, close you up in terms of the creative process, but what ended up happening was it opened me up. And that's the, that's sort of the counterintuitive thing about writing formal poems too, or even having some constraint. Um, I listened to your podcast with Richard Sykin and I, I've talked to him in person at an AWP, which is the writer's conference about those five books. Mm -hmm. And I have not stopped thinking about that process since he mentioned to me maybe three or four years ago, um, maybe two years ago of, of, of basically creating these constraints in these books. Like book one will be this, you know, it'll be about desire and, you know, book in panic, you know, book two will be uh, focused on art and it'll be vertical or, you know, and he has these, these really interesting horizontal, like the spatial things that are happening. Book three wouldn't say, but music, he said book three is about music and, and book four and, and they have all these formal constraints too, which, um, I think is fabulous. And, and to think that, and I think Richard Zykin is this amazingly creative poet. Um, you know, like I call him, you know, it's one of our genius generational poets. And, um, and, uh, and I think that those constraints can, can be liberating, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, the, the third person ended up being a constraint, Mm -hmm. but really, um, opened up, uh, but started out 
I, I think the impulse was shame if I go back and admit it to myself. It's like, how could I feel these silly emotions and why am I writing about this? You know, um, I was like, should I start, you know, putting hearts on my eyes again? You know, it was <laughs> like, it was really embarrassing to me. Um, and a lot, and I think I, shame is a big part of my existence. Mm-hmm. You know, I, wa- I wonder, you know, how if you have like a partner or a close friend and, uh, you say to them, like, why do I love this dress so much? Or why do I love this person so much? Why am I so attracted to this? Mm -hmm. And they're like, of course. And I feel like maybe, you know, maybe it's the shame. Yeah. Maybe it's the shame that gets me that I just get that, that, you know, but I, but the shame is not different. It's not disconnected from the form. Mm -hmm. Um, The form is, and by form, I mean specifically the line, the line breaks, the stanza breaks, the use of third person, mm-hmm. um, the diction, the syntax. Like it, the shame is embodied. Yes, in in those choices. Absolutely, and I think it, shame can be a huge motivator. Yeah, <laughs> and a huge um, creative inspiration. Right. Um, I mean. It, it, you talked about how in your work you're you're you go for those kind of really difficult topics. I I think I I I feel like I do too for myself, but also I go for like there are cultural topics that are difficult and embarrassing or or just kind of almost taboo to talk about. Mm. And I feel like you do the same thing in your work, um, especially when you're talking about like uh, relationships between partners. Like I always felt like wow, that's really really brave. Mm. But there's a degree of you know shame that comes from those feelings too. And I think what we're investigating and deconstructing is that the idea of how close to the true authentic feeling can you get and beyond, can you craft a piece of art that's not a mask mm-hmm. for your real emotions? I haven't gotten there yet. Mm. I really haven't. Cause there are a lot of things that I feel um, really shameful about and really deeply embarrassed about or deeply hurt about that I haven't yet written about. And I, I feel like, um, but, but I feel like if I were to get there, the work would bring me to another space, Mm. but I, I can't quite get there yet. But I think all of us, you know, I I feel like the closer you can get to that authentic bone, I guess, um, and find it really, or let it find you, I think, um, I tend to like that. There are poets that are of the mind or they're poets of the heart. There are poets that sort of fall all in between. Um, I just, I like both. So I like kind of traversing that like a tightrope. And, but I, I really do gravitate towards that really, uh, the raw emotion, not raw formally, but mm-hmm. raw emotion in poems. And what that requires us to do is to be honest with ourselves. And so I think that's, kind of hard to do though. It's always hard for me to remember that shame is not everyone's authentic bone or greatest (laughs) authenticity. I mean, I, and I, who knows whether it's sort of uh, characterological or Mm -hmm. temperamental Mm -hmm. or, or situational or cultural. Um, but I think that's really interesting. And I guess, you know, my question would be, Not that I recommend Mm -hmm. (laughs) always going towards shame, (laughs) especially if you don't have to. (laughs) Right. If you don't have to, don't. Um, But I was wondering when you do feel yourself uh, stepping away or not 
or not stepping over the line into certain subjects, um, what is it that's holding you back? Is it, um, I'm scared to be too vulnerable and uh to be too open with people, you know, so much of, I mean, so much of our existence is about masks, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, everything we do has a mask. And I think that, you know, I've gotten accustomed to that sort of growing up in the culture and the family that I've grown up in. It's like, you know, my mom used to always say, you know, uh, which means, you know, lose, that means like don't face literally, but losing face is like a big part of our culture, Chinese American culture. Um, and, uh, and so I, it was just a part of just, you know, regular conversation in my family. I can speak only for my family, but I, I do think that, um, you know, I always, I'm always afraid. So I live in a lot of fear and shame. And I think that that is something that I'm, I'm even afraid of that. And I'm afraid of expressing those things. Like you, like I always want to feel like I present the most professional face Mm. and, and it's like, um, there's always a a, a mask that I could reach. It's there, there are always a lot of masks around me that I can reach to very quickly. But I think poetry is kind of neat because, you know, I never really thought anyone would read any of my poems. It was just sort of like truly, uh, uh, an avocation or what, or a hobby, frankly, and something I just didn't know that people would actually be reading it. And so it was a way for me to be honest on the page, you know? And so I still, I still am because I still, when I'm writing, I don't think, oh, someone's actually going to read. Like these weren't, Barbie Chang poems weren't ever supposed to be read by anyone. So mm. that I try and kind of always have that mentality of like, there is no audience. No one will be reading these. And and then try and just be honest with, you know, doesn't mean I'll go back and not delete things. Or th- <laughs> right. Yeah. It's so interesting that um, sort of self perpetuated fiction, even though I don't think it's a trick. Like this is, uh, Obit is your fifth book? Yes. Your sixth book? Fifth yeah. book? Uh, I mean, I still, when I'm writing, um, and even when I send the work out, think nobody's going to read it. Mm-hmm. And that's, there's something important in that belief, yeah. I think. I'm not trying to, I'm not pretending to that belief, but I'm also, I also don't believe it. Right. And, you know, like I was, I wanted to actually go back to something you were talking about before about both at the festival and now about wanting, um, the reader to, uh, caring about the reader's experience. Right. And so if you are not going to use punctuation, which you haven't done in most or all of your books in at least third and fourth, third and fourth, um, you know, how does that, if it's difficult to read that you do care about the reader. So the poems are, are telling you how they want to be and you, you're trying to respect that, but you're also compromising, um, or changing or something for how you don't want the reader to be, you know, bored, angry, feel stupid. Right. Um, and so, we both know, we both do imagine mm-hmm. that there is a reader, even though we both also are like, nobody's ever going to read these. So I should really, this is the pl- this is the one place maybe to really say what's true. Right. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, I think of it as like a multi, like a two, I'm two different people when mm-hmm. I'm writing, you know, like when I'm creating, there really is no reader. Like mm-hmm. I am truly trying to just, uh, 
be the rawest self that I can be um, and really grapple with things. But then I hate that process, writing. What I love is the editing. Mm -hmm. And so um, I write in these really big bursts and um, I'm obsessive. So I have a very obsessive personality and uh, for better, for worse, for, for, it's, it's good and bad, but I think mostly bad. Um, and I think that, um, I'll just, just not be able to think about anything else, um, while I'm obsessing about something and then I'll just keep working on it and not be patient with it. And so not let it sit, just, just, just jam right through it and just keep going and keep going, not knowing when it's just finally going to leave me alone. Mm. Um, and so in some ways you're sort of, um, there's sort of some kind of devil that beholds you during those periods. And then finally I feel like, okay, I think I can shift gears now to, um, I have enough here. I can't, I'm just exhausted usually. So now I'm just going to let it sit for a while. And then I think that second part though, is, is like the, the year and a half, the two years, the five years, whatever after is the editing. I love that process because I don't, I don't feel like I'm being possessed by anyone or anything. And I can just put on a different brain, like a mm. different side of me that is like, okay, let's see, let's look at this line or this word and start picking at it. And, and that's what I really love. And the, uh, the creation part is, um, is hard. Mm. It's difficult and emotional and, um, yeah, I mean, sometimes I'll just be like crying <laughs> while I'm creating. I don't know. I'm sure that does that happen to you? Oh yeah, yeah. I've heard this. I've now I've started to admit it. I've actually started to admit that that happens to me. And now I've heard so many people say they too cry when they make things. Mm. And I was like, oh, I don't feel so alone now because I used to be really ashamed of that. Yeah. And so um, I think that the the editing part is when I start to think, okay, is this too hard to read? And then I start thinking about it from an editor's standpoint. And by then I've sort of even almost removed, it's a gradual divorce. Hmm. Mm. So I've married this devil and then I'm gradually <laughs> divorcing myself from the devil. As time goes on, I get less and less and less attached to the poems. Mm -hmm. And then by the time a book comes out, if it does it all, I'm like, no, you're my, you're my ex. It's, mm. it's fine. I can read you like almost read you feeling nothing and almost feels if someone else had written that work. So that's my process. And I'd love to change that, but I can't. <laughs> Wait, why would you love to change it? It seems like it's working, but it's just yeah. sort of painful. It's and painful. Horrible. Yeah. But I think writing is, it can be hard for everybody. I don't know if anyone's like, Oh, writing is so easy. I'm sure some people think it's easy. Yeah. Right. I haven't met one yet though. Have you? I don't think I've met anyone who said it's easy, but I definitely have met writers who say, I just love to play. Mm. And I don't feel that way about my writing, but I aspire to that. Yeah. Or at least to a period of time in my life where writing feels like making stuff. Right. Oh, let's make something today. Yeah. Um, I still feel that. Mm -hmm. Like, I really do still love playing. And like, but I think... I don't know. I think that's also a defense. Like mm -hmm. it's just not taking it all too seriously because right. I think, I think we can take all of this too seriously because it's, there's nothing at stake, but, but there's so much at stake and, um, and being outside of po like the poetry community for so long, sort of just doing other things. And, um, I think that was all a way to protect myself actually mm. from, 
from being too stressed about all of this because this is a very stressful way to live and be you know it's like uh it's a funny world that we live in, um, the literary community that now I understand better than I ever have and didn't even know all these things were happening while they were ha- like, while I was doing other things, I had no idea. Um, and so I think, um, yeah, no, I, I, you know, something like AWP to hear some friends have gone for 20 years just kind of floors me. I was like, you've been <laughs> dealing with this for 20 years. That's incredible. Like, why would you subject you yourself? You chose that. Yeah. Okay. I want to talk about this very crazy literary community that we are exist in and the other things that you've done. But let me ask you um, to just go back for one second. Mm-hmm. Um, you were saying that sometimes the creation process is sort of creative, is a uh, obsessive and sort of comes out, you know, uh, in a big burst. Like, do you remember, uh, the span of time, for example, that you were composing the Barbie Chang poems mm-hmm. in that book? And then there's two other sections. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's two sections of Barbie Chang poems, but then there's the long poem that's in, um, section two. Mm-hmm. And then there's the D- dear P poems in, um, the last section. So how long, like were the Barbie Chang yeah. poems? Um, when did those other pieces come in? Sure. And then, I'm also curious about the length of time of revising. Yeah, yeah. So I remember how long only because I have the worst memory. I always tell everyone I live in the future. And <laughs> and for better or for worse, that's who I am. And so um, um, I, I, I remember we were we had to live in a hotel for pretty much two months because um, there was some work being done on, on our house at the time. And so I was sitting at the hotel and... Um, and at that point, too, I think that um, I was still doing my other work and my other job, but I was working remotely. So mm-hmm. I just would work in the morning on this, and then and then for the rest of the day, I'd be on the phone or have phone calls or meetings and or working on other things. So it took about two months to draft those Barbie Chang things, which I called them um, because I didn't want to define them mm-hmm. for fear of ruining the whole thing. But the um, I also just was just kind of... I think I was just, uh, I was frustrated. You know, I was really frustrated with my feelings about the circle and these women. I was frustrated with the invisibility, the continued invisibility of people of color. And and um, and I was frustrated at sort of just being a parent and, and having to talk to so many parents and so many people that I just didn't feel like talking to. And, um, and... So I was just really kind of felt like I was just venting through mm-hmm. poetry. So it took me two weeks, two months, sorry. And then, um, yeah, and then I, I was like, oh, you know, maybe I'll start sending these out to journals and seeing if anyone thinks they're, you know, poetry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then when they started taking some, I was like, oh, maybe this is uh, poetry. And <laughs> maybe these are poems. And then eventually they made it into this manuscript um, that were just those poems. And that's when I started sending it out um, because I had been working with McSweeney's at that point and they, you know, they were having some financial difficulties. So I was looking for another publisher and um, the Barbie Chang poems went out just as that, that whole thing with nothing else in it. Mm. And I told the story and I tell it regularly uh, more to just let people know that things appear easy for many people oftentimes um, who have books and various things, but it, it often is not easy or sometimes it's easier than other times. But, you know, I sent it to Michael Wiegers um, at Copper Canyon Press um, and, you know, 
God bless him. He was like, I really liked it. I, he sat on it for a long time and I'm so busy that I just didn't know a year and a half had passed. Um, and he was like, you know, I'd love to take this, but I can't, it's just too uniform. Mm. And that really struck me. And I was like, Oh, okay, that's, that's fine. Cause you know, it's funny. I'd been working with, um, a friend of mine who used to live in Southern California, the, the, the poet Ilya Kaminsky, who's mm. what I call the friend of the world. Everyone's, mm. we are all his friends, but he and I have been exchanging manuscripts for a couple of years now. And he was like, it's too uniform. <laughs> and he had already sort of gotten me on that path and, um, said, you know, it's, it's just a lot of the same. And, uh, so it takes too long to get, you know, just, it's just too long in the front here. And basically it's like, I, I heard him to say, it's just, it's too consistent and it gets boring. And so I went to go find a manuscript that I had sent out a little bit, but I just didn't want to send it out anymore. And I just put it in a drawer. It was called Dear P. Um, and, and it had actually been a finalist for a bunch of contests at NPS and various things. I just, it didn't feel done to me. So I just said, I'm going to pull it and I'm just going to let it sit. And then I just, at this point, I was like, why not? You know, there are kids here, there are kids here, you know, and this one, Barbie Chang. And this like, I just grabbed those and I put them in the middle. But then what I had also done, I took out all the punctuation huh. and I made them all one long poem. Uh. So they're each individual poems and they weren't in these sonnet forms. So I, I just said, you know, I need more variation. This is telling me it wants to be one long poem with different numbers and it, they want to be these fake sonnets, which mm. is just made, you know, 14 lines. Mm. Um, and so I did that and I worked on them and I worked on them and I was like, no, still not done. It's like, it, this fourth section seems like it need, there, it's not, there's the arc is wrong. And so that's when I said, well, I think these Dear P poems, I have more of them in me now, many, many years later, and they're epistolary poems to Pen Penelope Penny, who's um, one of our kids, the older one. And I wrote these other, you know, a whole bunch more. And I, I just wrote a bunch. And then when I was done, I stopped. But they were um, shattered sonnets. So mm -hmm. they, they were broken. And that's what it felt like they wanted to be. And then it kind of called to the middle poems. And I have no idea if they even work in here or not, but... But I just, I was like, this poem, this, this manuscript needs to be complicated. Mm -hmm. It's too consistent. And everyone's telling me the same thing. And I felt that. And so that's what I worked on. And then I, um, I kind of just mentioned it in passing to Michael Wiegers at AWP um, in our very first meeting physically. And he's like, really? That's interesting. Send it to me again. And I was hmm. like, no, no, it's fine. But I, I just try and think, I say, well, what would so-and-so do? And for me, it's usually what would so-and-so male do? Yep. And then I just follow that path, even though it doesn't feel intuitive to me. So I said, I did send it. And then I also had sent it to a couple other places. And, um, at the same time, not thinking Michael would take it, Michael took it. And then several other publishers had taken it too. So mm -hmm. I'm like, Oh, so the, the complication actually helped mm -hmm. the manuscript and helped the reader, I think, um, ultimately, with more variation. And somehow the Dear P poems spoke to the other poems in ways that were sort of unexpected, I think, because um, they were artificially collided together. So that's sort of how that came about. I mean, my experience was that I was so annoyed to have to break the form, but I also know it absolutely was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. Like <laughs> I had both experiences, yeah. which was, which is great because I missed, but then I came back mm -hmm. and then I grew to love the dear P poems. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so, yes, great editing yeah. story about <laughs> Ilya and Michael. And and so, um, what was the the from the from uh, the year that you you know the the two months that you mm-hmm. were writing the Barbie Chang poems to the time that the book as a book was finished? Mm-hmm. What would you say? How many years? Two. Two years. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that usually seems to be the pattern. You know, it's like I write really quickly, and then the revising can take like about a year or two. Mm-hmm. And then, and then at some point, um, people always ask, well, how do you know when something's done? I mean, I don't really, but someone might take it. And that's a really artificial, easy, cheap way to figure out when something's done because I'm such an obsessive person. I could keep going forever and ever. Um, I kind of need someone to just take my body and, and as an arrow and just turn it. And so <laughs> that's usually what happens. Um, and then I, in other experiences and life happens, as you know, um, sick parents happen and all these other things happen. And, and so I think, um, those are all big markers for time periods in which my work decides to move in a different direction. Mm -hmm. Okay. I have to ask, you don't have to answer. Did the circle read the book? Did they recognize themselves? You know, I basically ended up kind of cleaning up my Facebook (laughs) (laughs) and I kind of just, uh, you know, clean because none of them really wanted to friend me. You know, technically I kind of had sought them out and, um, And then at some point, I just sort of unfriended all of them except for one who seemed like the nicest member of the circle. And I don't know. I I don't know. I don't think they read poetry. Mm -hmm. And so there's always that beauty. But then once in a while, uh, like if someone posted something on Facebook and I would share it or I would post something, I worried. But then I said, you know, this is part of that process of expunging my body of shame. Mm -hmm. This is how I feel or felt. And this is what I created. And I'm going to own it whether I like it or not. And so that was um, part of that artistic process of letting go and just saying, you know, F it. I don't care if they read it or not. Because, and the other part of me knew, it's like they just don't care about me. Like they couldn't, men- they, they probably couldn't remember my name. Hmm. Um, there's that deep ingrained sense of invisibility. And it wasn't just me being a woman and a person of color. I mean, these were gorgeous women and they pretty much, I mean, like other, you know, women who um, maybe weren't quite as, you know, physically, stereotypically, conventionally gorgeous as them were also invisible. And when we did hang out with these other women, that's all they talked about and all we talked about. And it was just like, this is really sad, but it gave me some, so much great material and things to think about. And I still don't know if poetry is the right venue or the right medium to talk about any of these things, but it's the only thing I know how to write, um, better than anything else. And it's really the only thing that calls me very heavily. And so for better or worse, these things end up in poetry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you. I, I, it's very confusing to me. (laughs) I don't think I've ever talked about this on the podcast, but, uh, my youngest, um, my oldest is about to graduate from the school that my husband teaches at and my youngest goes there and my kids did not always go to this school. They went to public school. They went to a different, like much more sort of schleppy. My older kids, when they were little, went to uh, a much, much less kind of fancy um, school. And, um, you know, I, this is a big drama for me. I, I call them the lobby moms. Ah, They're always in the lobby. lobby. And I, there are two that I, I, I just think are amazing Mm -hmm. women that I wish I was saw more often, but I don't 
ever go to the school. So like when my older boys were younger, um, I was, you know, I took them, you know, 75% of the time. Mm -hmm. And when my little one was in public school, I would, my husband couldn't do any of these things because he was teaching at a different school. And so it was like me 95%. Mm -hmm. But now my husband takes him to school and, you know, no, and there's, I'm not invisible in certain ways because my husband is friends with all of the lobby moms and he's (laughs) like really good at it. And I think individually they are very different than how they present to me Mm -hmm. or my fear of them. Yes. Um, My image of them is that they're all very tall and very (laughs) blonde and not Jewish and that I feel really criticized uh, both by the women who don't work mm-hmm. and by the women who work who are who are mostly like really high powered lawyers. Mm-hmm. And and so I feel like I, I work. But what does that even mean? Right. You know what I mean? And um, it's a whole it is a real drama in it my life. Drama. It's a real source of pain. It's a source of pain. And, you know, it also it also makes you reflect on your whole being and your identity and where you sit in the social strata of our universe, which is the whole world. But it's a, you know, that's just a proxy for everything, right? Um, I mean, all we're just, America is so status oriented and Mm -hmm. it's so commerce driven and um, capitalist and everything is through that lens. And I think that even where we sit and how we feel about ourselves in terms of identity is along that social strata. You know, I was just talking to uh, my children's book agent who came to the festival um, about how, uh, you know, there's there's even a hierarchy within the publishing field about what stories should be told now. And, you know, the Asian American stories aren't always at the top of that right now. And it's 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 weird. It's like to think about how everything is commercialized about what can sell and what it just, you know, in, in our us too as bodies and individuals and um, who does what labor at school, what you should do or shouldn't do. And my kids come up to me and sometimes say, how come you didn't volunteer today? And I was like, I, well, one, I don't believe that I should be in your school and all the time or ever. That's just my personal value. Mm-hmm. And I don't judge anyone else for their time that they spend there. But I, I don't, that's not what I believe in. I think they should be independent. Um, we'll see each other later, plenty of them. And, um, and then the other thing is, it's like, I don't really have the time. Mm-hmm. And if I did have the time, I just don't, that's not what I want to be doing. And that's honest, you know, um, and if I'm going to be honest with myself, I'd rather be reading or doing something else that I like to do. And so that's, that's like, when you're in school, I've just bought myself time. Right. And I want to use that time. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it, it is a weird to be thrust into that, um, and every culture, school culture is different. Mm-hmm. Um, every has, you know, depending on whether it's a private school, independent school or a public school or where the public school is, all of that changes. But one thing that you have in common is you always have a certain set of people who do spend a significant amount of time in school and God bless them. We need them. Yeah. Um, they're part of, they're an extension of the workforce. Um, sometimes they're very kind. Um, the school we're in now, they're wonderful, mm-hmm. but the school we're in, we're in now is also extremely diverse mm-hmm. and in the other school, it, they weren't so wonderful, but it does make you think about all these things more than you might want to. You know? Right. And yeah. I, and I bet, um, 
<laughs> I think this was in the fall, uh, but I showed up for my son's curriculum night mm -hmm. and my husband couldn't go because it was his curriculum night, I think, as well. Mm -hmm. And there was a long line and I had just been teaching and I had like rushed over and I was like really preoccupied. And I got in this like long line to check in where they give you your kid's schedule. And I, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, my God, did I tell this story already? Who knows? Anyway, I'm uh, and uh, I was so flustered and I got to the front of the line and it was students who were, you know, older students who were handing out the middle school schedules. And I said my son's name and I was like, yes, and he's in fifth grade. And they kept looking <laughs> through, you know, the forms to find him. And, uh, they couldn't find him and they couldn't find him. And I was, and you know, in my mind, in my imagination, everyone is staring at me and annoyed and there are people behind me and it's like, oh my God, lady, you know, and also people don't know me, but they all seem to know each other. Like all they're like best friends. Um, so anyway, I, I keep saying the same thing over and over again. And finally I'm like, oh my God, he's not in fifth grade. He's in sixth grade. <laughs> and then they immediately like found his thing. And I just, you know, and I, I wanted to like, first of all, probably nobody was noticing, right. but I wanted to like scream at the top of my lungs. I'm actually a really good mom and I know what grade my kid right. is in. And I spend a lot of time with him and like, don't judge me. And maybe these uh, they're almost always women. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe these women feel judged that I think I'm like better than them, that mm -hmm. I don't have to do the very important labor that they are doing. Right. And, and the school could not function without them. Sure. I don't, uh, judge them, but I don't choose to do that. Right. Uh, I'm really grateful that I don't have to. Mm -hmm. Um, and it just, it seems very sad. There's like all this like mom on mom violence. Yes. It's always the women on women. <sighs> right. And, and I'm probably perpetuating yes, it. I don't want are. to be. We all are. And, and I think, I mean, I've been thinking so much about women and the the role of women in our, in our culture and who does the labor, you know, who does the uh, administrative work, who does the emotional labor with the students, um, who does the work in the office that, that, uh, to support the work of men. Something I've been thinking about and I, a lot is, you know, and I, and I mentioned this to, um, someone I was talking to at AWP is like, I regularly call men geniuses. Mm. What women are geniuses? Let's mm. make a concerted effort to call Mary Roofley a genius, mm. Louise Glick a genius, mm. Jory Graham a genius, Anne Carson a genius. You know, it's like, but we're always calling, you know, Richard Sykin, who I do call a genius, Terrence Hayes, genius, Ilya Kaminsky, all of these poets that I love. How about the women of our generation? Let's change the vocabulary and support the, the women. And what are the women doing? You know, people say, hey, do you ever think about writing a book of essays? I think about that all the time. But, you know, we're doing all the admin, we're doing all mm -hmm. the emotional labor, we're doing everything. And so I think just at least changing the vocabulary and how we talk about women is mm -hmm. the first step. And the second step, which is much harder, is like clearing some space um, for women to do some of this other work that um, they don't have time to do, but want to do. So I've been thinking a lot about gender and feminism in just our culture as a whole, in our workplaces, um, as you know, uh, administrators within programs and creative writing programs or otherwise, which, you know, I am now doing, um, pro, you know, program chair stuff a lot um, in support of the team. And it's just, you know, what does the woman end up doing? Let's talk about that. Okay. Because, <laughs> you know, as you were saying this, I, I, I was like, 
Yeah, we are both lobby moms, Mm -hmm. but just not in the lobby of the school. That's right. And um, so help me get help me list all of the labor that you are currently doing within the literary community. And then we'll talk about the fact that you weren't always doing this much labor in the literary community and you were working outside of the literary community. Yeah, I mean, I think we... I think a lot of women do a lot of labor. I mean, I think of the Commonplace podcast as being a labor of love and community. Um, It takes up time away from your own writing, but it's look what a service you're providing for the community and the culture around the world. Um, You know, I, I think I... I just tend to think that I'm very community driven and people will sometimes say to me, hey, you know, stop, um, you know, sort of promoting other poets and other poets work all the time. And I was like, I'm not really promoting. I'm just sharing what I'm reading. Mm -hmm. But that's a different sort of mindset within itself. Right. Is that like that's also a more of a masculine mindset, dare I say, or maybe I'm treading into dangerous waters here by genderizing that. But, you know, I do think that um I do think that I just like to build community. And so if that means reading a lot and sharing, that's a part of it. I think, you know, listening to the students a lot and listening to their problems is a part of, um, you know, it's a part of that kind of work that needs to be done, the emotional labor for students who, frankly, these days have so much stress Mm -hmm. and so much um, they're not doing well for the most part. And those that come to poetry um, are are wounded. And uh, I can identify with that immensely. But, you know, now it feels worse than ever with all the social media. And it just seems like the kids are under an enormous amount of pressure. And so that is just, you know, basically a revolving door into office hours. Sometimes I feel like they line up and you just sit and you listen and you listen and you listen. Um, And sometimes I listen so much, I feel guilty. I was like, am I listening to my own children? You know, Mm -hmm. and then there's that emotional labor. I'm always giving to other people. Have I listen to my children today. What do they need from me? So that's that emotional labor that I know my partner will not provide because Mm -hmm. it's just not his personality. Um, And so I feel like I need to do a better job at that. You know, I take care of, I took care of my mom when she was sick for a long time and passed recently. And then I take care of my dad who's thankfully has enough you know resources to put him in a place where he'll be safe but it's me that has to worry about all of that and manage his medications and go visit him and you know just worry about him that's emotional labor um but yeah i mean it just keeps going it's yeah. so much you know okay so wait you're teaching mm-hmm um, is, are you teaching at Antioch or is it? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, we don't have to have as many students because we're also running the program. So uh-huh. we have three, I take on three students per semester. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you're like the program, what's your title? Program director? Core or faculty, core, core but, fac- um, soon I'll have to be an interim program chair because uh-huh. our program, um, chair is retiring. And then I'm also teaching a class at Cal arts just that last semester and this semester, that's just a regular 15 weeker. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, doing that. I helped to co-coordinate the Idlewild Writers Week, which mm. is like a little mini bread loaf. It's super fun. Mm. We have a good time up there, but that's a lot of labor. For sure. Um, yeah, I'm also on the National Book Critics Circle Board and I do that. I, I, I sort of put my name in the hat because I wanted to sort of provide my view of the 
you know, literary world in terms of um, poetry that I was reading and I'm an avid reader anyway. Mm-hmm. That's that's all of us do a lot of work. Some people do way more work than others. And I'm not one of those people. Mm. But I definitely um, read all the books in poetry and I'm very anal about making sure that I try and do the best job I can. On that I mean, that front. must be an yeah. enormous amount of work. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. But I chose, I chose to do that because I think it's important. Yeah. I think all these things are important. And then we just, when we were at the festival, someone came up to you, uh, it was, it was Megan who, who was like, oh, you, you, uh, picked my friend's book. So, uh, for a prize. Right. Um, so you're also reading for contests. Yeah. And what a gift to be asked, you know, it's not, it's not that I've ever been asked before very often. And, and so if I get asked to do that kind of labor, um, you know, whether it's reading for the push cart or whether it's juring for prize, you know, prizes or book awards, I'm like, what a gift to be asked to do this work. Um, because in the past there, there, you know, I don't think my perspective was always there, Mm -hmm. um, whatever my perspective means. And so I always say yes to all of that work because I feel like it's, it's important to be, it's important to get my voice in there, um, for all sorts of reasons. Um, you know, being a person from marginalized communities, uh, I, I think it's, it's important to, to provide, provide that lens, whatever that lens is. Um, Mm -hmm. and we're all so different. So it's not to say that, you know, another Asian American female poet may, um, you know, have the same perspective as me. So I'm, very, very aware of, of that. And so I, I do do a lot of that work too, because I think that's important. Well, okay. Not to mention, which we should mention, I'm going to mention, uh, the anthology that you right. edited, um, yeah. which can we talk about this for a minute? Absolutely. Because I feel like this is both, uh, exactly what you're talking about, about, um, doing the work, the real yeah. work, the real labor to, uh, to share your perspective, to mm-hmm. be present, to not be invisible, to make, to be, to do community building mm-hmm. to, um, but you know, I've edited an anth- I co-edited an anthology and it is at a tremendous amount of work. It is. Yeah. Um, so I, so, uh, you, edited on your own. And I want to ask you about that. Um, Asian American poetry, the next generation. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a great book. Um, the poems are great. The introduction is great. Uh, I, I guess I wanted, and you did this when you were getting your MFA. I did it before I even had a book, first book of poetry out. And you know, the, the impulse to edit that was just that where are the Asian American poets, I couldn't find them. Mm -hmm. And if I did, like I'd see like Rick Barrett in poetry, I'd see somebody else somewhere else, but there was never in one sort of place and all the anthologies that had been edited in the past were really old. And so me just being me, I was like, I'm just going to do this. And <laughs> it got a lot of pushback from my community Interesting. In, di- in different ways. Um, the, the one I remember is this really uh, well-known at the time, older sort of Asian American poet was like, who the heck is she? Uh-huh. And so I was like, I found that to be so uh, symptomatic, I guess, of the, what everything that was broken about poetry. And so like this was back in the day when there was no internet, no Twitter. Um, there was no attitude. Now there's no attitude of like, who, who is this person or that person or who are they? Um, you know, now you could do anything you want. Mm. You know, you and I could start a press right now, right here, and we can get it out 
you know, probably within a reasonable amount of time, we could start a journal right now, you and I. And I think that's the coolest thing. And I've had that feeling back when I was in my early 20s that this is this system that we live under is very oppressive and, in, and exclusive and, um, and very much name-based, you know, and, and not open. And so I was like, I'm going to try and do this. I don't care if these people think I'm a nobody mm-hmm. because I don't think you need to be a somebody to do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I was sort of kind of a rabble rouser in that way. And so that was my first intro into the, the, the community. And then when it was published, um, it came under, you know, some people really liked it and some people were like, it's not experimental enough. It's not this enough. It's not that enough. And, and, uh, criticized it. Um, and I was fine with that too. And I was like, well, I've started a dialogue, yeah, <laughs> you know? which I mean, is more than we had before, you know? Absolutely. And, yeah. and you can't make an anthology without, um, I mean, as you say, um, you're going to exclude. That's right. And I think I think the the premise of an anthology is problematic. Yes. We saw that with um, the legitimate dangers yep. anthology that was really big for a while. Um, yeah, the new American poetry. Every anthology that comes out is best American poetry gets that too. Um, it's just you know if it's annual, it's it's not as big of a deal. Mm-hmm. But even when I was flipping through the push cart in the back, I was thinking, oh, wow, look at this person. They've been in here 12 times, you know? <laughs> and so I, I was thinking to myself, yeah, anthologies can be a little in- ex- exclusive, but they, they really, that was not the impulse at all for this. Um, and, and it was a, it was a good lesson. Like I learned a lot from that experience and I'm, and I'm really glad that I, I did it. But my answer to everyone was like, well, we started a conversation let's keep going yeah, and let's keep moving forward. And, um, you know, I think there have been a couple new anthologies after that were wider in terms of their aesthetic leanings and all those sorts of things. So I was like, this is great. You Mm -hmm. know, maybe I inspired someone to do something else. Um, okay. So, so you're sort of, uh, just naming, uh, even though you acknowledge, of course, that there were Asian and Asian American writers writing before mm-hmm. this, but um, I, Kathy Song, John Yao, Lee Young Lee, Marilyn Chin, Garrett yep. Hongo, as kind of like the first generation, yeah. um, and then the poets in this anthology, which which are came out in two thousand four, um, just just to, uh, we'll put the whole table of contents up, but. Um, uh, Nick Carbo, Rick Barrett, Jennifer Chang, uh, Sue Kwok Kim, um, Monica Farrell, uh, Kathy Park Hong, Warren Liu, uh, Chiku Reddy, Pomone Triplett. So these are some of the like the next generation. Mm-hmm. And in the in the introduction, you talk about uh, like a shift that you see from the first generation to the next generation. And um, you point out a few, uh, even though you acknowledge that there's enormous diversity amongst these so-called next generation Asian American writers, that there is a shift. Um, And more, uh, less trepidation about talking about taboo subjects, Mm um, more, uh, comfort with, uh, talking openly about LGBTQ Mm -hmm. identities and positionalities, uh, some formal things that you notice, although there's a great diversity of formal, um, uh, you know, strategies, um, I guess my my question is, so now we're in 2019. Mm-hmm. So what are you seeing um, that's happening with, I don't know what 
to call them the next right. next generation sure. what yeah. do you call them oh gosh of- i don't know i just think the next generation of poets is phenomenal mm-hmm. i am in awe of all of them and i'm a huge fan of so many of them but as a generation um i'm so uh bowled over by their brazenness their willingness to question to speak up to um commune mm-hmm. so that's something that I find to be fascinating. I mean, it's it's tricky because in some ways they commune in ways that are um, newly exclusive. So right. if we really want to deconstruct it, we we could. But I'm more of a cheerleader. Um, you know, they grew up differently, and and you can feel that in their work. It feels more urgent. It feels formally inventive. Um, it feels like a big shift from what we were writing in in just in terms of the movements and the pacing in particular, like mm-hmm. I find the pacing to be very unique when I think of, you know, poets like Chen Chen, um, or, you know, even poets like, um, Kaveh Akbar or Dennis Smith, you know, I'm just talking about all of the next generation and Fatima Askar. I could go on Hala Alian. I mean, there's so many of them. Um, Leila Chetty. I just, I mean, I could spew like a hundred of them right now that are all just doing really interesting work. And, um, you know, Paige Lewis, her poems are sort of like, they just have so much movement and so much kind of frenetic energy that I think is a formal uh, difference, you mm. know, and not to say that, that our generation didn't have that, but this is more of a, a through line I see in, in many of their poems that I think, um, feels just, just energy. Like there's just so much energy and, and I, and I love sort of seeing what they're doing and, you know, they're grappling with even more taboo subject matter and being even more open in their writing and, and more sort of questioning the establishment in their writing and, and outside in terms of how they um, navigate the community, the literary community, which they navigate and then they break it Mm -hmm. and they remake it. And I just love that because I feel like that's what I wanted to do. I felt like an anachronism. I was like, what is up with this, you know, literary community in this world that I live in? I feel like I want to do so much, but I don't have the tools to do them. Like I have a little hammer, you know, I have a little chisel and a little tiny scalpel. Like I just didn't have enough to do what these, these people are doing today. And they have the internet and Mm. Twitter and social media. And, um, I think they're doing really cool stuff. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. I mean, the energy and the, Per- perseverance mm-hmm. and and yeah the the confidence to confidence. to remake yes um to break yes um is really fabulous um I want to ask specifically though about Asian American mm-hmm. like this next generation of Asian American writers you know in the introduction you were talking about sort of this like very tired argument over. Uh, assimilation versus evolution, Um, you know, like this argument about like, you know, is this group identity meaningful or is there too much assimilation? Is there not enough assimilation, Mm -hmm. you know, or can we reframe this as evolution Um, and and also evolution and also uh, uh, more diversity within what we consider to be Asian American right. identity. Yeah. Um, cause it's not one thing. Right. It's um, not one thing. And I think that's the primary difference. And now I look around and, and I look at, you know, organizations like Kundaman and I mean, you just, we're not all the same. And I think that continues to show up in the work of the next generation. Um, I feel 
more similar to in terms of the artistic process to someone like Terrence Hayes mm. um, than I do with um, you know maybe someone Asian American. Like, like we're so different from each other, but in so many ways um, we've been kind of tokenized, and we still are. Oh, let's make sure there's there that one Asian American blank to put in this list or that group or that, and um, that's not that's just a, a lack of recognition of how incredibly diverse that we we each are um, from each other. And so, yes, I do think that there are a lot of differences. I mean, I think of, you know, I, I think of Kristen Chang as another mm. Asian American poet who is phenomenal. I mean, I'm so in awe of how wonderful Kristen's writing is. And I've seen um, Kristen's poems everywhere, you know, like on Twitter, but also if I'm editing or juring things, I, it just comes out through the transom a lot. And, and I just read each one with such delight and pleasure. It sometimes talks about some of the issues that we talked about, you know, assimilation. Um, but now we're talking about sort of LGBTQ issues related to the, the parents. And same with Chen Chen. It's like, I just read this fabulous poem um, that talked about how, yes, you know, this is, I've told my parents, you know, I've told you, I think it's in second person, you know, that, <laughs> that I'm gay, but it's like, and I'm bringing my partner with, with me to dinner. And this time you will speak to my partner. You will do these things. You'll ask the, my partner questions. And it's just this really funny, but like there's a lot of pathos in it. Mm. So, um, it's not that these topics weren't covered in our generation of Asian American poetry, but they weren't quite as open and funny and sort of honest and authentic. Um, and so I think that there, if I were to do another, you know, thinking like, oh, for there were another anthology, oh boy, you know, there, there could be so many interesting things to, to put in there. And I think that aesthetically, you know, someone like Kathy Park Hong um, of our generation, it's just, there's so many people writing, um, really more experimental work that I would probably look a little bit more closely at, you know, um, I've, I think I've since that anthology become a wider reader mm -hmm. and that was a lesson for me is to learn and see what else is out there and mm -hmm. do a better job of opening the, the, um, and like, what are those things that horses have those? Oh, blinders. Blinders. Yeah. yeah. We have them and yeah. And I need to, sh I need to widen them. And mm -hmm. so I've been trying to widen them. My perception um, as a white person looking at those organizations right recently um, and what I know of the Asian American community, of, of poetry community, mm -hmm. is that it seems to be in this very vibrant place right this minute, yeah. um, both in terms of incredible stylistic diversity yes. um, and, and celebrating that yeah. rather than getting into some kind of totally ridiculous, like, well, there it's very important to me, lyric versus experience, you know, whatever. Right. That's not happening within yeah. that community. It doesn't seem like it. I yeah. mean, it might happen, you know, I, I think... I think poets in general can do a pretty good job of infighting. So mm -hmm. I think that's something we're all pretty skilled at. Mm -hmm. um, that's what I love about the next generation. They don't seem like they're infighting quite as much, but I'd have to ask them. Yeah. But I felt like in our generation, at least, um, people had like some some really uh, pointy fingernails and were, were happy, happy to claw your eye eyeballs out. <laughs> you know, We just have a different a culture. And I think, um, but it seems like, 
from what I can see and, you know, mostly from the outside, to be honest with you, because I don't run those organizations. I don't spend a lot of time with them, but I've seen a heck of a lot of great poets coming out of there. Um, There's just a lot of like, I'm like, wow, there's more than one now. And everywhere I turn, they're like these wonderful books that I'm super excited to read um, by Asian American poets, Kenji Liu, mm-hmm. Alice James. Um, I loved that book. It's super experimental. And he has, he calls them Franken poems. Frank, Franken pose, I think, is what he, he, re, he hmm. calls them. And just sort of like pulling from all sorts of text. Um, Alice James just did that book. And, um, and so there's just a lot of great vibrancy. And they're, frankly, more opportunity. And I think that it's about time, you know, I'm excited. Right. And I think the other thing I was going to say, and I don't, you know, maybe somebody listening is going to think that I'm totally naive, which mm-hmm. maybe I am. But the other thing that I feel uh, seems true about these organizations is that they're uh, very committed to not being uh, certainly at odds with other communities, other marginalized communities yeah. or, you know, uh, but in fact that part of their mandate is not just to, you know, further, uh, you know, to build community around Asian American writers, but to also reach out to other marginalized communities or underrepresented groups. Mm-hmm. And that, that is a, that to me seems like a deep and lasting, uh, shift in the model. And I, I, I agree with you completely. There is still plenty of infighting, mm-hmm. um, like a, a insane, stupid, Always. painful, Always. horrible <laughs> scarcity of resources, yes. economy, yes. Uh, bad feelings That's to last to topic. eternity. Yes. But I, the, my hope that it might change is is from thinking about the models mm-hmm. of Cave Canem, Kundiman, yes. Cantamundo, yep. um, you know, Asian American Writers Workshop, it, you know, or the, you know, the men that support Vita, uh, the way yep. that Vita uh, supports, you know, not just, you know, not only women. That's right. I think that these, there's no, there's no group like this out there that I know of that's like, we're only in it for ourselves. No. I mean, that would be are, insane. What are we actually fighting for? We're fighting for everyone. Right. You know, and I think that everything we do is not just fighting for a person that looks like us. We're fighting for equality. You know, we're fighting for visibility. It's just, a, you know, one sort of basket in which we fight that ho- hopefully has these permeations, um, you know, like rays of, of light onto other communities. And, you know, we all have to stand up for something. And I think that it's just a proxy, you know, to use that word again, for um, fighting for human rights, mm-hmm. basic human rights. And and I and I, I really think that for me is community work. Mm-hmm. You know, you're doing it seemingly for one sort of thing, but it's really not. It's the work that you do, the the way that you do the work, the way you navigate the world th- with integrity and morals and values. And that's that hopefully bleeds into everything around you, um, whether people seem like they fit into a certain identity or not, you know? Right. And I just want to say like, uh, this caveat, which is really in, not in any way spoken to you, but to the generation before us, which is, I think, um, you know, 
I was raised very much with this like liberal notion of colorblindness and like, oh, it's not about identity. It's, a, you know, it's a human rights. And I know you're not saying that. It's it, th This is what I find so beautiful is that I feel like, you know, even a well-intentioned, well-meaning, essentially assimilationist viewpoint of like, I don't see color right. or, you know, it's, we're all the same and we all have to band together. That is not what we're, either of us are talking no. about at all. No, no, <laughs> we, we are not all the same. We have different right. life experiences and, and, but I feel like we came there, you know, there, there was, uh, we're at this moment where that is very, uh, agreed upon. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and uh, certainly poets younger than us, mm -hmm. um, I would say they're all, they all got it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like no one's going to be like, it's just, everybody's the same, you know, that, right. that would be super weird. <laughs> um, but somehow, um, with a real attention to difference, yes. there is, there is community, yes, community absolutely. of difference. And I think right. that, that, that I did not see that mm -hmm. at all. Uh, when I was, you know, coming into the literary world right. that was not present. Yeah. It was one or the other. Right. And our, you know, we were a little different. I mean, I can't fully speak for, I mean, I can't really fully speak for anyone but myself, but I, you know, I wasn't really embedded in the literary world in ways that some of my friends were. But what I will say is that, you know, our, our job and our path was to just follow our predecessors. Mm -hmm. And we all did a pretty good job of that, I think, when I look around me. Um, but, you know, I think that was also possibly to follow them and how they thought about the world and the lens in which they viewed the world. And I think that's all sort of changing and it, it makes um, lots of people very uncomfortable, mm -hmm. but I think it's wonderful. I mean, I think the more uncomfortable you feel, the better off you are in the end um, because you're forced to face discomfort and tough issues and navigate your own biases and your own issues. Um, and so I think we're at a really interesting point in history. And, um, and so, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens going forward. I'm excited about the future. And I think that, um, you know, our, I'm like, I change every day, you know, mm -hmm. like I listen to your podcasts. I've switched how I think about pedagogy mm. or pedagogy, however people want to say it, but <laughs> I've heard it said both ways. And so I'm always learning. And I think having that sort of mentality, um, has served me well. I think the more open that we can be, the more successful we'll be to, in, in terms of, you know, people getting along. Um, but, but, you know, at the most basic level, but understanding that we can still disagree about our differences and mm -hmm. argue about them and fight about them, but ultimately not kill each other. Mm -hmm. you know? I think that would be a good place to start. But I think that that seeing difference versus saying everything's hunky dory and everything's great um, has required me to go back into my own history and ask myself those hard questions of those feelings that I buried um, with all the microaggressions and outright aggressions that I've experienced. And it's made me think, oh yeah, you know, that wasn't okay. Mm. And that's kind of the history. That's what we're, go we're all going through now as a culture. You're, you're making me think about the um, poems in which uh, Barbie Chang is thinking about Ellen Powell. Mm. Um, but can we talk about that a little yeah. bit? Because you you have changed uh, in some ways right. so much and are clearly open to change. And so um, 
you grew up in Michigan. Yes. And then um, you got your BA. Remind me where you got your BA because my brain is Michigan and Michigan. And then you got a business degree. Yeah. So I went. So let's see. What did I do? I got a BA from Michigan in East Asian Studies. Mm-hmm. Then I went to Harvard, thinking mm-hmm. I was gonna get a PhD Mm -hmm. um, in East Asian studies Mm -hmm. or history. And so I started, I got a master's in history there. Um, And then I kind of got into the uh, the capitalist crowd at yeah. Harvard, and they exist apparently, <laughs> and they're all like, "Come, come to the dark side. Here, let me help you with your resume. You should get a job <laughs> in investment banking or management consulting. That's the path you should take." I was like, "Okay." Mm-hmm. So I'm just so malleable sometimes and gullible, and I just followed that. And um, I'm kind of like interested in everything, and so I ended up getting a job. Barely, I barely got a job. I got a job in Silicon Valley at Morgan Stanley. Um, did that for not very long. I hated it so much. Mm. And then I switched over to management consulting and worked at Booz Allen Hamilton. That was the path you're supposed to take before business school. And I, you know, all this time I was sort of like kind of dabbling in poetry, but then I fell on that track and kind of liked it. You know, I really enjoyed, um, these people that I was meeting, they're all very interesting and they were much more capitalist than I was. Like they're much more into making money and building things than I was. And I always wondered why. Um, but now I recognize I, that's not, I didn't want to build those things. I wanted to build other things. Mm. And so um, I wanted to build things in the literary world, but I didn't know that at the time because I didn't know there was a literary world because my parents are immigrants. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we didn't have any books around that much. We, if we had books, there were Chinese books or encyclopedias, you know, we didn't really have that stuff. And so I learned from them and they just took me along that path. And then I ended up getting a, an MBA from Stanford. And eventually I went back to school, got a MFA from Warren Wilson. Um, yeah. So I have a lot of degrees, but that's okay. <laughs> it's just, I like to learn, I mm-hmm. think, but I, I recognize at some point and I read somewhere that African-American women are the most um, highly educated, that they um, are they have the the largest percentage, I guess, of, of um, like PhDs and higher degrees. Fascinating. And I think, you know, I, I've, thought, I've been thinking about this a lot. I, I think myself and I can speak about myself only that it was a way of compensating mm. for um, a lot of things. Who knows what? Um, lots of things, I'm sure. But just kind of. Overeducating myself was a way of, of always feeling like maybe no one was going to think that anything I said was valuable or is that I was, you know, sort of an Ill- illegitimate and invisible. And if I just outworked everyone and out outsmarted everyone, somehow, somehow they would finally see me. And I recognize at some point that that was just really silly, but I did enjoy the process of learning. Um, but since then, I've kind of I've recognized that that's just, you know, that was what I was doing Mm. (laughs) that, um, yeah. And, and I, I learned a lot, but I didn't know if it was all necessary. Um, but you know, I think that I also like to do a lot of things. So I think I could have done a lot of other things. Like I really think documentary films are cool. Mm. Um, I like, I always liked drawing when I was little. Mm. Um, I think it'd be cool to be a graphic designer. Like I'm just kind of like, unfortunately just kind of all over the place Mm. in mind and in spirit and so I think um that's sort of why I you know my friends who went straight from college to you know an MFA and you know that kind of thing went straight into academia I just I didn't even one I didn't know that existed but two I'm not sure that that my personality could have done that 
I have such mixed feelings, both uh, like some resentment, jealousy, <laughs> uh, and weirded outness about, I don't know if you, uh, like Ann Carson for so long, it said, or maybe it was Alice Notley. Now I can't remember, <laughs> but one of them in their bio, it, oh, I think it was Alice Notley. It yeah. said like, she's never tried to be, or she's never been anything other than a poet. Uh -huh. There's like a really unusual sentence in her bio. And, you know, I remember, you know, since I just love to judge myself, uh, negatively Don't for we? everything I yes, do. Yes, we do. Um, you're I'm, a doula. Right. Yeah. Right. I've done like a, done a lot, lot of, of things stuff. that yes. are not, that are not, you know, poetry. Right. Um, and I think now looking back on that, um, that was fantastic. Don't and you think now? Yeah. Yes. And, I, and in some ways I think, I mean, I'm still, I'm doing this crazy sound project and like all these different things, but, but to some extent I'm doing a, a, a more narrow range mm -hmm. than I used to. And I think it's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> Um, don't you feel like you're, you're just like something is not, you're not going to be like stretched as much, you know, like, like Play-Doh or like that stuff that used to be in the egg what yeah. is that stuff. Oh, silly putty. Silly putty. Yeah. Like, you know, just, uh, yeah. And those, those just kind of like, I just feel like if you narrow yourself too much, your purview of the world is going to be more narrow. Um, but I also fear that you'll think the stakes are much higher than they yes, are. Yes. I'm not saying you, but I, I fear that, oh yeah, if you're too invested in this community, you actually think things actually matter. Right. And being outside of it for so long, I literally, and, and having such sick parents and being so busy, I've never really spent a lot of time thinking about all those things, you know, that some of my friends think about, um, mostly because I haven't had time, but it does give you perspective. You're like, wait, what are you all wanting to get? Or mm -hmm. what are you wanting to win? Like, I didn't even know that what, like, I didn't even, like, until recently, and I still don't have a grasp of all the things that you could win, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't really know there are all these things that, that people did, you know, like, in terms of their books. And I just didn't know. Like, I, yeah. I still don't know. And I still um, learn every day. I'm like, really? You're supposed to do that? Or, oh, you can go after that? Or that's what people do? And I think that... Um, in some ways that naivety is, has been emotionally healthy. Um, but I think it's a good thing. I mean, I think it's great. You did all those things mm -hmm. and that you're a parent that, you know, that I think that contributes to, um, a lot of difference and openness in how you view the world or just distraction, you know, like you can't, and just seeing things through your kid's lens, you know, yeah. they just, they don't care about the same stuff that we do, which <laughs> makes you think, well, maybe I shouldn't care about it either. So I think, I mean, I think it's good, but whether we want to say it's good or bad, we kind of don't have a choice. Right. That's true. Are there things that you miss from working in finance that you're like, I miss the people sometimes, not uh -huh. those people. Like I only worked at Morgan Stanley for like a year, uh -huh. but I worked in Booz Allen Hamilton for two and then did a bunch of other stuff after mm. business school. But like, um, sometimes I miss the, 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 the way that those people think. Mm. And I mean, they're just so strategic, you know, they're so visionary. They're always thinking about processes and, you know, they're just kind of organized, um, systems thinkers. Mm. And I think I have that training and I can be that way, but sometimes I feel like I'm a, um, an alien, you know, <laughs> like now that I work at, you know, Antioch, which is a university, um, that it's like, Oh, I, I think I feel like so weird. And then I feel really weird to be a poet who thinks in those ways too. Yeah. Um, 
you know, it's like, I haven't really met a lot of people who have the background that I do. And I was thinking maybe, maybe that's just too weird. Like sometimes I just feel like it's too strange. And, um, and then I fear, and sometimes I fear that I won't have the ability to see what I look like from other, like I only know me. And so I'm not people, you know, who have lived in the poetry world for a long time. And I operate it my way, which is always very independent and very single-minded. And other people might look at me and say, oh, she's so blank, obnoxious, or this, or that, or that, or this, or um, she has a marketing background. Therefore, you know, this is naturally coming through that lens. And, you know, I, I sometimes worry that I have blind spots mm. and that other people might view me differently than I view myself because I know things I do come from a certain place or I have natural skills that I learned that I do things that could be viewed as being sort of um, capitalist or promotion oriented. And, and that's so natural to me to have that kind of training that I don't, it doesn't, I don't know if it comes from a place of badness, but I think sometimes I fear I have, I have blind spots. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we were talking about this in the car a little bit. And, and I, th one of the things that I don't like about the poetry community, um, or at least some of my interactions is that I think that there's like a, a I don't know how to say this in a way that's both honest and respectful, but, you know, I think because there's so little to no money to mm -hmm. be made in the poetry mm -hmm. world and because uh, the most famous poets in America are not famous people. Right. Um, so there's so little status to be had. Mm -hmm. um, even though what we said before, I think is absolutely true that there's this, res this like, upsurge of community yes. and fellowship and, right. and, and, and love, there is still, um, this like real fight for resources. Yeah. And I think that there is like so much like self-hatred yes. and, and a, around mixing, um, you know, money or status and art capital right. A yes. and, to my, in my experience, um, people who have either come from outside the poetry world mm -hmm. or who have spent time outside the poetry world, most poets do. Most yeah. poets have to. Yeah, um, no, they do. You yeah. know, um, and they have day jobs mm -hmm. and they, you know, uh, they, and, and by day jobs, I, I kind of mean not teaching, um, like that they've had to exist in a world um, that's not poetry and that's not academia, mm -hmm. um, at least for so, at some point. I find that um, those writers, this is a generalization, yeah. which is not good, but um, are more clear about like, yeah, I wrote this book mm -hmm. and I want to promote it right. and I'm not, you know, going to feel horrible about yeah. it, but also I'm not going to pretend that... Um, you know, like when Sarah Gambito said, like, just because you win the prize doesn't make you a better person. That's right. And it doesn't make your work more valuable. No, but it doesn't also mean that you shouldn't apply for the prize or that you shouldn't right. want it or that you shouldn't go after That's it. That's right. Or, you, sh you know, all of those things. And I think that there's like this weird double-edged thing where people are like shaming each other mm -hmm. for... Because they're really ashamed about themselves. I guess. And I think, I mean, for me, I always thought of... Um, all my life was more commerce driven, that poetry was this, this special space I could go in where no money was exchanged. I loved that there was no money exchanged. Mm -hmm. um, and so now I, I'm a little bit 
less comfortable with the commerce of it. But I, I also recognize, you know, we had a huge uh, discussion about speaker agents mm-hmm. in the car, but also in it's happening on social media. And, you know, the, the, the real fact of it is that there are no teaching jobs. And these people, all ages, are resourceful and intelligent enough to use their wares, which is, you know, poetry, um, to basically try and eke out a living and put food on their tables. And mm-hmm. who are we to judge them for that? Sure. Um, but, you know, again, the other side is it does have implications for the art in that it's no longer um, without money exchanged, you know, in more generally. I mean, there are there are always prizes and things, but now it's more widespread. And, you know, Instagram poetry, um, which people hate when you call it Instagram poetry, but poetry that is on Instagram and using mostly using that as a platform is really cool. Mm-hmm. I have no issue with it. Um, but I, I, I think that the change is always kind of funny. Like people have um, discomfort with change, but I like to see all sides of it. Like a you know, like a documentary camera, just like roving around and looking at everyone and interviewing everyone. And I, I see and hear all sides. And I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I just think we're just in the midst of a lot of change, but I do think that coming from the outside, you know, it's like, I did always think poetry was really pure. Mm -hmm. So that was my mindset. And I, I liked that, but I never had as much discomfort, I think maybe than other people may, I can't speak for other people, but just sort of like, okay, well now I've published a book. It's my job and responsibility to, to put on this other hat and try and get it out there as much as I can. And Mm -hmm. so that's a part of, um, switching gears, you know, just like the, but do I think art is the most pure thing poetry and I wish there's no money attached to it at all and and it used to be my my special space to go yes but I think that that you can be it's like nothing is mutually exclusive like you can be uh, someone who really believes in the purity of art and the creation of poetry and you can also understand that if you sell 100 copies you will not have a publisher next time. So right. like I have less discomfort, I guess, with those kinds of realities. It's like, well, you know, I mean, how many books do you want me to sell? Like, what would you deem is acceptable for your press? And I have no problem asking mm. them that. Have you asked that? Yes. Mm. I asked and I, I will sit at the Copper Canyon table and enjoy talking to Laura Buccieri, who's our, you know, publicist and the two people who basically run the shop. But I'll basically ask them like all sorts of questions like that, because I'm fascinated by the operations of a press and how a press survives in today's time. And, you know, I just noticed they have to spend a lot of time fundraising. What does that mean? I I mean, that's sort of my business background. Mm -hmm. I'm more interested in that stuff when I'm there and I pick their brains just for fun. Right. And I think that's my comfort level with talking about those things with them and wanting to learn about Mm -hmm. those things. Um, but yeah, I'll ask them straight up, like what's, what's good for you? Like, what are you happy with? Right. And they'll tell me, like, they'll tell me, um, other people will tell me and they'll be very honest about it because their minds are in it all the time. And I'm also comfortable with that. I don't know. You just kind of want to know, like if you've done your press justice and you know, you're not doing it for yourself. I mean, I don't, as my ego, I don't need to sell any number of copies. 
if they're just floating on the internet in a gift economy, I'm perfect, perfectly yeah. satisfied with that. I don't even need a book. This is all artificial created by other people. But if my poems were just floating and, and people write to me or they read it and don't write to me, like the impact that our work has on the world should be enough. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love about poetry. And I mean, I read all of your books. And when I was first starting out, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of them meant a lot to me. Mm. And just growing up reading your work. And mm. I... I just think that's a beautiful thing. And it um, is, it's, it's not, it's not, I mean, first of all, thank you for saying that, but, and it is, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's more than a beautiful thing. It's, it's astonishing. It's totally astonishing. And like we had a moment, um, today, um, maybe it's easier for me to talk about this than myself and your lovely comment, (laughs) but Monica Farrell, uh, said to me that she, uh, that one of my mother's books, Anana, yes. is really important to her. And yes. she hadn't even realized that was my mother. Yes. And, you know, I've been involved in a six-year battle with HarperCollins over publishing Anana as a uh, an ebook, which was one of the things my mother was working on before she died. And it is insane wow. that they still haven't done it uh, and super frustrating. And you know, I'm her literary executor, so I can see that the book is, you know, not selling mm-hmm. very much since she passed away. And I can see her numbers, too. Mm-hmm. But it's it's moments like that, you know, moments like meeting you mm-hmm. and hearing you say that my work has been important to you or other people, you know, who have reached out to me or Monica Farrell, like being mm-hmm. like, oh, my God, that's your mother. Like this book, like Did she, she how excited Monica was. I know. And she yeah. like teaches a whole I, course I felt, that's kind of I like that around bones. that yes. somehow. I mean, that's incredible. incredible. That's that's what we that's why we do this is, um, you know, I, I talked with one of my friends about this of when. You know, we we talk about this a lot, and and you know, I'm I sort of reshaped how I think about this. So when your work is done, uh huh. Well, I used to think it was sort of done when I finished working on it, and he challenged me. He's like, "Well, of course, that's wonderful and fine, Victoria, but I think that my poems are done when a reader touches them in some way. So you complete the circle." Huh. And I sort of re- rethought that. I said, "You know, that's true. I actually think that's true. Like, I I think once a reader, any reader, sort of connects with the work in any way, whether they like it or not, then the poem has completed its cycle of mm-hmm. life in some ways." And I think that. Um, yeah, I mean, to see Monica Farrell be so excited about that connection, you could genuinely feel that in her in her body. Um, and I felt it almost emanating from her. It was like a really special moment. Yeah. And I'm sure your mom felt even, mm. you know, and I mean, or you felt that your mom would have liked to know, and I don't presume to know what you felt actually. But I mean, I felt for me that, boy, what a lovely incredible moment um to know that something that your mother created who your mother's not around anymore is still a part of someone's life and a part of the earth in some way I think that's special um and yeah and then there's the reality of this whole you know commercial enterprise called you know AWP and the books and this and that and it is what it is Mm -hmm. I mean I think um that's just part of what exists. And so I just follow the or, the rules in that world. But I'm pretty sure it's, it's, things are going to change somehow that I don't <laughs> see because the future generations will be like, this is not acceptable. I'm going to blow this 
you know, and, and break it and, and build something new. Um, and to some degree that's already happening. There are all these online journals yep. and, um, that have a lot of cultural currency. And so, um, I think it's wonderful and small mm-hmm. publishers, you know, that are doing great work. Um, so I think, I think a lot of things are changing now too. So, yeah. all right, let's talk about Obit. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I've uh, heard you introduced and I've seen it said yeah. online. So it must be true mm-hmm. that Obit is one of the most highly anticipated books who, who, I don't even know who said this, but somebody did no and I believe it. <laughs> I'm anticipating with eagerness. So, um, yeah, talk about this book and will you maybe read one or two pieces? That'd be awesome. Yeah. So um, my mom, uh, as you know, I said this today, my mom has, she had pulmonary fibrosis and um, that's just a gradual sort of hardening of the the lungs and then you suffocate to death. It's kind of hard to watch happen. Um, and she was sick for a long time, but when my dad had a stroke about 10 years ago, her illness just, you know, uh, plummeted mm. and she just got, she was, it was really bad. And, um, they fought all the time. It's brutal. Um, so when she died in 2015, it was all sorts of emotions as one could imagine relief, sadness, deep, 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 deep sadness that, um, that this bottomless well that I could never imagine that I would feel that much um, sadness. And I still feel, and I live it every day, but it gives me perspective on things um, that I didn't have before. But I I didn't want to write elegies because I was like, oh, it's so cliched. Everybody's written these great elegies. How could I ever write another elegy? Um, And so I was like, I'm not going to do it. And so I didn't. And then one day I was in a car listening to NPR and someone had made this great documentary called Obit. And I haven't seen it, but I really, I read everything about it. I read all the reviews. And um, so I don't watch, again, I don't watch movies, but I like to read reviews on Mm. movies, oddly. It's like (laughs) criticism. Um, But you know, that long O and that, that hard T, just something about that word triggered something in me. And then I literally drove home, sat down and wrote over the next two week period, like 70 or 75 of these obituaries, which were this idea that, you know, when someone you love dies, everything dies. So in the manuscript, I mean, I just kept on, and they look like little skinny obituaries. Mm -hmm. Um, my mother's lungs died, civility died, privacy died, my mother's teeth, logic, gait, I die, chair, tears, memory, like then there's repeats, oxygen, everything dies. And that's kind of what it felt like to me um, and still feels like to me. Um, you know, I haven't re-entered the world and I don't know yeah. if I if I ever will. And, you know, I think um, I feel like I took my mom's death a little too hard. I don't know. I feel like other people seem to have bounced back to some extent. I just have, I I haven't and I can't and I I still haven't figured out why. But um, yeah, the grief is is overwhelming. You know, I mean, your mom, what year did your mom pass away? She, well, she passed away on January 30th to 31st of 2013. And I would say I'm, it's changed, but I'm not over it at all. Yeah. I maybe, mean, maybe I identify with people like that more. I've seen people who have parents pass and they just, it seems like they bounce back. Maybe they hold it in them and they don't share it. And maybe other people would say that about me, but I certainly don't feel it. And so, yeah, I wrote these in, um, in two weeks. And then I spent the next year and a half working on this, this grouping of stuff. And, 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been a hard experience even editing these because it's like the amount of bawling that I did in constructing these poems and then also revising them, you know, would fill, um, quite, quite large, uh, you know, voluminous, um, you know, vats. I've cried so much working on this. And so, mm. um, looking back on it, you know, I just really wanted to distill grief is how I would really think about it. And, and try and figure out what it it meant to me and means to me. And then also trying to get as close to the bone of grief as possible. Mm. Like, can you describe grief? Like, what is grief? Like, is it even possible to describe what it feels like? And that felt like an impossibility to me. And so that impossibility, I think, was really the, the driver of all of this, you know, um, and obviously, I, I don't know if I figured it out because I just kept on going. <laughs> right. And so I'm not sure I did. But I think I, I it was the process that was important for me. And so, um, yeah, but it, I'm I'm sort of done, I guess, because I haven't looked at it in a while. And I'm afraid to. And I just keep waiting for them. They're going to ask me for it. Copper Canyon Press is going to ask me for it soon. I'm just like, hurry up and ask me so I don't have to look <laughs> at it anymore. Yeah. Um, because I just, I haven't. And what I've been noodling with is that pen, that pesky acknowledgments page oh. that I always noodle with because I, I'm trying to, I just feel like if I say too many people's names, I'll be, you know, a psychophant. Or if I don't put enough people in there, I'll feel like I'm hurting people's feelings and being, so it's, it's actually a great way to deflect on doing the real work, mm. which is the actual writing in the manuscript, but I'm sitting here noodling. But it's done. page. Yeah. Yeah, it's done. I think so. Yeah. Because I don't want to work on it anymore. Maybe that um, means it's done. Yeah. Will you read one or two? Yeah. Okay. I'll just read this one. Awesome. <laughs> the doctors died on August 3rd, 2015, surrounded by all the doctors before them and their eyes that should have been red but weren't. The Russian doctor knew death was near before anyone else first said the word hospice, a word that looks like hospital and spice. Which is it? To yearn for someone's quick death seems wrong. To go to the hospital cafeteria and hunch over a table of toast, pots of jam, butter glistening, seems wrong. To want to extend someone's life who is suffering, seems wrong. Do we want the orchid or the swan swimming in the middle of the lake? We can touch the orchid, and it doesn't move. The orchid is our understanding of death, but the swan is death. Mm, I love that. Thank you. You've been listening to episode 75 of Commonplace Conversations with Poets and Other People. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. You've just heard poet, professor, and editor, Victoria Chang. This episode was produced by me, Katie Fernelius, Nicholas Fuenzalita, Doreen Wang, and Christine LaRusso, and sound edited by Natalie Boyd and Katie Fernelius. Our advisor in all things is Daniel Schiffman. 
The music you're listening to was written by Judah Darwin Zucker Gorin and performed by Judah on keyboard and Moses Zucker Gorin on guitar. Many thanks to the Westchester Poetry Festival, located at the Master's School, for allowing me to record there, to Copper Canyon Press, University of Georgia Press, McSweeney's, and Crab Orchard Southern Illinois University Press for books for this episode, and to all the presses who have supported Commonplace. Thank you to our generous patrons, to our reviewers and recommenders, and of course, to you, listener. Thank you for listening.